I think I say this almost every time I come here, but one of the great pleasures that I have in coming here, um, sorry, I've got a little bit of a cold if I sound stopped up, but one of the great pleasures I have in coming here is having the opportunity to sing with you. Today we're going to talk about our words and the way that we use our words and how they reveal our heart. And the way that you use your words in singing reveals your heart to me. And it shows that you've got a lot of love and a lot of praise to give to our great God. And so I go, I've spoken in a lot of churches, um, and this is the one that I always love to come and sing with. So thank you all. Thank you for ministering to me. So this morning, uh, we're going to look at Proverbs 26. And I was here last week, and what I submitted to you is that when we think about how are we growing as Christians, how are we growing as a church? <clears throat> Oftentimes we're tempted to think about quantity, to think about numbers. But most often in Scripture, it's not quantity, but it's quality. It's the qualitative things that God used to determine how someone or how a group of people are growing. And so I submitted, I want us to look at our ears and our mouths. Last week we looked at our ears. How is what we're listening to shaping us? And how can we grow in attuning our ears to the Word of God as individuals and as a group? And this week, I want us to look at our words. How, is, how do our lips tell us about how we're growing in Christ? What we're going to talk about is that our lips actually reveal our hearts. Now, words are powerful. I think we all know this. Um, and words, because of that, they have this great power to bring healing into our lives. Some of us may be able to remember a, a healing, encouraging word that someone has said to us. But, sadly, more often, I think that we have the opposite experience with words. It's likely that you can remember, the, that you can't remember the many scrapes and bruises and bumps that you got as a child. But you can remember the hurtful words of a playground bully, the disappointed words of a parent, the scolding words of a teacher or authority figure. Oftentimes later in, those, later in life, those words, although they happened decades ago, will come rushing to the forefront of your mind. The mean thing that someone said on the playground. Words can heal, but the sad reality is that more often they hurt. And so because of this, we're going to focus our inquiry about the mouth-heart connection on one set of words, quarrelsome words. Now, Proverbs talks a lot about words. So, I mean, if you're going to give me a couple hours, maybe we could go through different kinds. But today, you've only given me two hours. So, we're going to look at quarrelsome words. Everyone's like, oh, how do I get out of here? Um, and I realize, you know, quarrelsome is a very weird word. Uh, I mentioned it to one person, and they said it sounded like, a, I was talking about a quarreler. And someone said, you know, that sounds like a character from a Harry Potter movie. You know, like the Quidditch players, you've got the Seeker, the Bludger, and the Quarreler. Um, for those of you who aren't familiar, a quarrel is a verbal fight that is charged with anger and malice. A verbal fight charged with anger and malice. Why should we look at this? Well, uh, you only need go online for a minute 
to see that this is increasingly defining the way that we communicate with one another in society. So many people have dubbed uh, our, our current cultural moment the age of outrage. And it's not just online. We see this in the way we interact with our coworkers. We see this within our families. We see this within our best friends. The age of outrage. So, if you would, please open your Bibles with me to Proverbs 26, 20 through 28. Proverbs 26, 20 through 28. This is the Word of God. He gives it to us because He loves us. <clears throat> Starting in verse 20. For the lack of wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases. As charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife. The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels that go down into the inner parts of the body. Like the glaze covering an earthen vessel are fervent lips with an evil heart. Whoever, whoever hates disguises himself with his lips and harbors deceit in his hearts. When he speaks graciously, believe him not. For there are seven abominations in his heart. Though his hatred be covered with deception, his wickedness will be exposed in the assembly. Whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. A lying tongue hates its victim, and a flattering mouth works ruins. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you that when we look into your word, we see words that heal. Father, we admit that our words are oftentimes words that hurt, words that carry hate. And that's because we're sinners. You know this well. So we pray that today, Father, through your word, you would help to heal our hearts so that we would become people who speak words like you've spoken to us. We know that we can't do this on our own. We're weak. So, Father, would you do it through your Holy Spirit? Amen. <clears throat> so I want us to look at two simple things today. The heart of quarreling and the healing of quarrelers. First, let's look at the heart of quarreling. Uh, this passage gives us several different descriptions of what a quarrelsome person is like. And we see them throughout. Look at, in verses 20 and 21. The words of a quarrelsome person are like gasoline when it's thrown on a fire. It inflames everything. It ignites the flame of conflict. Then we go to 20, 20, verses 20 and 22. We see the quarreler isn't, it, the quarreler isn't just like a drunk person looking for a fight. You know, they're not just belligerent, always looking to put up the fist, but rather, a quarreler is more often like a whisperer. Someone who talks behind people's backs, grumbles underneath his or her breath, or even just thinks hurtful thoughts. In verses 23 through 26, uh, a quarrelsome person's words are described as deceitful. They are crafty with their words. And uh, like the glazing on the outside of pottery that creates a smooth surface over the rough pot. So the quarreler's sweet-talking words 
glaze over the hidden intentions of their heart to harm. Now, given all of this, we could just say, you know what, if you want to stop being quarrelsome, stay out of drama, watch not only what you say, but what you think, don't sugarcoat, don't suck up to people, be straightforward and honest, and all that is admittedly really good advice. We should do all this. But it wouldn't be enough for us to just say that. Why do I say that? Well, look at verses 23, 24, and 25. As we read these, think about what is the recurring word here. Like the glaze covering an earthen vessel or fervent lips with an evil heart. Whoever hates disguises himself with his lips and harbors deceit in his heart. When he speaks graciously, believe him not, for there are seven abominations in his heart. What the compiler of the Proverbs is trying to tell us, or is trying to clue us in on is something important. That the source of quarreling is not necessarily with the lips, but it's deeper. It's with the heart. In the Bible, the heart isn't just uh, the vital organ that we have, nor is it just the emotions. So often we speak about what's in our hearts. It's neither just of those things, but rather it's everything. The heart in the Jewish conception describes the very essence of a person, the center of the self, intellect, emotion, spirituality, physicality, all of those are combined in the heart. One theologian, Karl Barth, put it this way. He said, the heart is the reality of man, both holy of soul and holy of the body. As such, the heart is the control center of the self, of the entire person. As goes the heart, so goes everything else. The will, the affections, the actions. But the heart, interestingly enough, is also described as being where God resides within a person. Paul writes in Ephesians 3, saying that Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. So, interesting, it's the control center of the self, but it's also the place where God dwells. And because of those things, it means that the heart is very important. And because of that, it is precisely the place where Satan attacks the most. It is the beachhead in Satan's war against the Christian and against the church. His desire is that we would separate ourselves from God, our Creator. And that as we do that, we would begin to self-destruct because we're no longer connected to the source of life, God Himself. And the way that He does that is very subtle. It's by implanting it's biological warfare. It's implanting the cancer of sin deep within the heart so that all of the parts of us would be controlled by this rebellious impulse to move away from God and towards ourselves. This is what we read about earlier, what Jesus said in Matthew 15. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, Sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Have you ever have you ever heard of kudzu? 
I've got a couple of yeses and a couple of noes. Uh, the people who've grown up in the south are probably saying yes. Those outside, maybe no. Uh, the kudzu is a vine. And it's a vine, it's called the vine that ate the south. Again, I've mentioned it before, I'm from Mississippi. Uh, it's everywhere. Um, so much so that we actually, there's certain highways where it covers the entire uh, side of the highway. We call it a green tunnel, is what it looks like. The thing is, kudzu is incredibly invasive. It takes over whatever it's introduced to, and you can't get rid of it easily. If you cut it back, it'll actually grow quicker and with a greater vengeance. If you burn it, it will come back. The only thing that you can do, the only way you can get rid of kudzu is by uprooting what is called the root crown. This is free. Yeah, this is free advice for you. It's by uprooting the root crown. It's this woody ball that's in the ground, and it's the ball out of which all the vines come and spread throughout the yard or the highway, and then come up with the vine. It's out of which everything originates. If we're to address our quarrelsomeness, we can't do it through a simple five-step program. We can't focus on how to just cut negativity out of our life and only speak and think positively. It's not enough. It's like trying to trim back kudzu. It'll actually come back worse. And that's true for our hearts. And it's this that we have to get around when we start to recognize what we're going to do about quarreling. We have to recognize that we have a heart problem. I heard a story. Um, it's from a woman in our denomination who's a, who's a popular speaker. And when she was 31, she had not been to the doctor in eight years. She thought, you know, she's like, I'm in good health. I had no reason to go to the doctor. She'd been on her parents' insurance for, and then got off. So she's like, I don't even have the money to go to a doctor. She was working in ministry at the time. Uh, but she moved to a new place, to a new city. And wherever she moved, whatever plants were there were giving her really bad allergies, unlike where she had previously been. So she needed a prescription. This is back in the day when you couldn't get Claritin over the counter. Uh, you, she needed a prescription for Claritin to control her allergies. So... She did the logical thing that someone who hasn't been to the doctor in eight, year, eight years does. She calls her brother, who's a doctor, and she says, Hey, can you hook me up with a prescription for Claritin? And he says, Yeah, you know, you just moved. I understand that you're busy. I'll do it. Which is probably illegal, but um, <laughs> that's for Claritin. I guess it's not, that's pretty innocuous. So he does that, but then as always happens with medicine, you know, half a year down the road. It runs out. He gets another call. And this time he changes his tune. He says, no, look, you got to grow up. you got to go to a doctor. So she finally does. And because she hadn't been to a doctor in a long time, they have to do just a, a general checkup of how she's doing, not just addressing her allergies. And so she goes. Um, and what happens next was a total blur for her. Because she sits down with the nurse, and the nurse um, listens to her heart. And as they're sitting there, you know, they're having some kind of small, some small talk, and the nurse uses the stethoscope and listens to it. And the nurse looks at her and she says, 
tell me about your heart. And this woman actually thought she was like trying to witness to her or something. <laughs> She's like, what, what are you talking about? Tell me about your heart. Um, she said, no, 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 something, something's weird with your heart. Have you ever noticed this? And she said, no. So they called the doctor in. The doctor listened. He said, yeah, something's really wrong here. They sent her to a cardiologist immediately. Cardiologist takes her in, does an EKG, and confirms that she has a very serious arrhythmia, which means that her heart doesn't keep a normal beat. It's, it's very dangerous if it's left unchecked. And the doctor said this to her. He said, you can be on medicine for the rest of your life, or you can have it surgically corrected. And you can imagine this young woman who had thought she was in perfect health, hadn't been to the doctor in eight years. She's just stunned. And she says, this can't be happening. I went to the doctor this morning to get Claritin. And you're telling me I'm about to have to have surgery. And the doctor said, look, you don't understand. You're in a very dangerous place with your heart. And she replied, but like, otherwise I'm healthy, right? And the doctor said, there is no health apart from your heart. There is no help apart from your heart. Look at verse 27. Whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. This is the, pro this is the author telling us there is no help apart from our heart. If left unchecked, we will fall into the pit and the stone will roll upon us. If we're going to deal with our quarrelsomeness, or with any other destructive behavior in our life, we have to address our hearts. You know, and I know that even as I say this, um, there's probably a, some of you who are looking and saying like, you know, I, I get that being quarrelsome isn't a good thing. I get it exposes where my heart is. But you know, like, I, that's not me. I'm not quarrelsome. I'm not an angry person. And I get that. Um, I... I was always described growing up as like a very mild child. Um, they would say, people would say like, Harrison, you're the steady person. You know, you don't get real riled up about stuff. No one really saw me angry or upset. And so I started to believe that about myself. You know, I'm, I'm like calm, cool, and collected guy. That's my role in the world. But then I became a parent. <laughs> my poor son, I use him in like, all of our, every sermon. I'm glad that he can't understand what I'm talking about. Uh, a, a couple months ago, he was going through a sleep regression, and he just hadn't slept well for days. And my wife and I felt like we hadn't slept well for days either. And to add to the stress, uh, he, the height of the sleep regression was during a very busy, stressful week for us. It always happens that way. And um, fast forward to night three of him not sleeping. He wakes up around 1 a.m. He starts to cry. And we let him cry for probably 15 to 45 minutes. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, but, and eventually I just couldn't take it anymore. And I turned over in the bed and I did the weirdest thing. I took my fist and I slammed it into my bed. And I stood up and I marched to his room. And I was just running down a mental list of all the terrible things that I wanted to say. And I swung the door open. His door's got, it got kind of pushed to get it open. So I really, you know, it flung open. 
And he was standing there. He, he wears a sleep sack, you know. It looks like he's in a little potato sack. He's, he's in there in his sleep sack, um, standing up in his bed, and he's, he's got a toy donkey in one hand because that's, we let our child sleep with toy donkeys. Um, he's got a toy donkey and a toy car in the other hand, and he's doing the sniffle cry, you know, the... It was just so sad, and he was so helpless. And when I saw him, you know, it hit me like a sack of bricks. I thought, my God, who, who am I? It was like it took, it was like God took a flashlight and just it put it down to the cavern of my heart where the sinful self was. He exposed all of the anger and the frustration that I work so hard to suppress because I'm calm, cool, and collected guy. And I want to suggest that if you're really honest with yourself, this is probably you as well. If you really pay attention to the things that you say when you're stressed, when you're afraid, when you're angry, or if you really start to pay attention to your thought life, not just the things that you say, maybe you've got the restraint to not say what you want to say, but you hear what you say in your head, you'll start to hear your heart. And as you do this, and as you come to terms with this, you'll start to see yourself as the subject of these Proverbs. You'll see within yourself the heart of the quarreler. And look, I'm not wanting to talk about this just so we can all feel bad about ourselves, right? That's the stereotype of a good, of a good Presbyterian. Um, I'm not wanting to do it just so we feel bad about ourselves, but here's why. I'm wanting us to come to terms with this for, for you and for me, because when we get insight into the sinfulness of our hearts, and we begin to actually understand it and process it, that's when we are beginning to barrel towards wisdom. That's what the Proverbs are about. It's, take, it's splashing the water in our face and saying, look at yourself. It's trying to bring us to a sober understanding who we are so that we might have wisdom. J.C. Ryle said this, Christ is, never, Christ is never fully valued until sin is clearly seen. We must know the depth and malignity of our disease in order to appreciate the great physician. Do you know why Jesus healed so many sick people in the Gospels? Right now in RUF, we're working through the book of Mark. And in the Gospels, Jesus is left and right. He's healing sick people. He's making lame people walk. He's making blind people see. You would think, like... You know, these people that were writing this were all about, you know, the economy of words. You'd think they'd put like one or two in there and we'd get it. But they keep going on and on and on about how Jesus is always healing people. You know why he did, why he did that? So that you can know that you can be healed. He can heal you. He's safe. He's not going to shame you. He's not going to punish you. But rather... He's going to show that he is more powerful than the sin that afflicts you by healing you. And so I want to go to our second point, the healing of quarrelers. How does Jesus do this? How does he heal us? Um, it, it, there was a sermon series recently at the, at the church 
um, that my wife and I go to, and the pastor there, Eric, who has been here before, he said that it's through our union with Christ that we experience change. And I think that's spot on. So I want to go with that. What, how does our union with Christ change our quarrelsome parts? So start off, what's, if, you, if you've never heard the term or you're not fresh on it, what's union with Christ? Put very succinctly, people have written multiple, multiple books about this, but to put it in a sentence, it means that we are in Him and He is in us. We are in Him and He is in us. That's union with Christ. He gives us everything that is His. His wholeness, His purity, His eternal life, His standing before the Father. And He takes upon Himself everything that is ours. Our sin, our guilt, our hearts. So this means that if we're united to Christ, He lived, died, and was raised to heal our quarrelsome hearts. Let me explain. Let's go through it. First, Jesus lived the life that we should have lived. He was tempted in every way but remained sinless. Whereas our thoughts are often full of anger and hate, His were sinless. They were full of love, of truth, and grace. Now keep in mind, Jesus spoke harshly with people. Right? Think about the Pharisees. He didn't mince words with them. He didn't uh, just talk nice to them. But you have to understand that when he was doing this with them, he wasn't intending to hurt, but to heal them, actually, and the people around. He was trying to throw the, throw the glass of water on their face and wake them up to their hypocrisy. What this means is that we should consider the life of Jesus and the way that he used his words and let it move us. His humility should melt the pride that causes us to put other people down. His gentleness should warm the cold heart that produces cruel remarks. His mercy should cause us to realize that it is better to forgive than it is to hold a grudge. So it's his life, but also it's his death. As our substitute, Jesus took upon himself the death penalty for our sin. He died the death that we should die. He fell into the pit that we dug. He was crushed under the stone that we pushed, that we started rolling. And not only does he take our punishment, but get this, he gives us his perfect standing before the Father. So that when God sees us, he looks upon us with the same love and affection and approval with which he looks upon Christ. This means that we don't have to try and hold everything together anymore to be okay. Look, Jesus didn't die for the job interview version of you. The one that's all dressed up. The one that's got the resume ready to put it on the desk. He died for the fifth day of flu version of you. Those sweatpants that you've had on for five days. The snot coming down the nose. And look, here's what that means. That means that you shouldn't be afraid to come to this God with your sinful heart. 
You shouldn't be afraid to come to him and to expose before him the hate that's there that your words have shown you. The anger, the frustration, and the impatience. Why? Because by his death, he is showing you that you can come to him. We have access with the Father to ask for healing. And this may sound like a bold claim, and it is. But by doing this, this means that you can actually learn more about God by bringing your sin to him. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he has this great comment. He's talking about the parable of the prodigal son. And he says that the prodigal son actually knew far more about the father, not before he left, but when he returned. Now, the, the, par- the prodigal son sinned. He should never have left the father, right? That's sin. But in coming back, he had a greater understanding of his father's love and forgiveness. When he saw the father push back his garment and run down the road to meet him, he has a better understanding of who his father is. And this is the same, my friends, for us. The great sovereignty of God means that he uses even our sin to further further our understanding of his love. I heard one commentator put it this way. He said, Even the sins of believers work for their good, not from the nature of sin, but by the goodness and the power of Him who brings light out of darkness. So this means that when we look, when we take account of our words, and when they point us back in on the the deep recesses of sin in our heart, we don't have to hide those from God. Or we don't have to double down on trying to act like we're good and we've got it all together. But rather, we can come to Him because of what Jesus has done in His life and His death for us. We can come to Him because we know that when God sees us, He sees Christ. It's His life, it's His death. Not only that, it's His resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead that we might rise from our quarrelsomeness. For many of us, the prospect of change feels impossible. I was talking with one student one time, um, and she, we were talking about she's got a problem with gossiping. Um, and she said, look, like this is how I was raised. In the community I was in, every person that I knew gossiped. She's like, this is how I had friends in high school we would talk bad about other people behind their backs. I don't know how to change. Look at verse 22. The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down to the inner parts of the body. The temptation of sin is strong. It's like a slice of cake from Shindig's. Do y'all know where that is? It's this dessert place in town, and it's, it's two blocks from our house. <laughs> and it's the best cake I've ever had. And that says a lot, because my grandmother had a great cake. It's the best cake. She's not around to hear that. I hope she doesn't hear that up in heaven, because <laughs> uh, she'll have words for me when I get up there. But it's the best cake that I've ever had. And almost every day, I walk by that. 
And um, I had this really bad habit during my first year of being the campus minister at VCU because uh, I was just, I was so insecure. I was so new to new to the game, and every time I, I felt like every sermon I gave was really bad. And every time I would walk by there, the temptation to stress eat was so strong. And they have a to-go place. So you can actually get a slice of cake. And for them, a slice of cake is a fourth of the cake. I mean, it's literally enough to probably give you diabetes in one slice. It, the temptation was so strong, and I gave in too much. The proverb is trying to say that sin is like that as well. It's a delicious morsel. It goes down into the inner parts of the body. And the reality is this. Apart from Christ, we can't resist that. Apart from Christ, we can't resist letting someone have it when we know they need it. <laughs> but Jesus broke the power of sin by defeating death in his resurrection. And since we're united to him and what's his is ours, we share in that victory. So because of this, giving in to our quarrelsomeness, going back to the quarreler's heart is like putting chains back on after you've been liberated. So how do we resist sin? How do we not eat? How do we not always eat the slice or two or three of that cake? God changes our appetites. As we feast on His grace through His Word. Remember what we talked about last week. As we feast on His grace through His Word, through His sacrament, through prayer, through the communion of saints. As we do that, he changes what we desire. And slowly but surely we begin to hunger for the righteousness that He has given us in Christ. And when that happens, we will be, we will be more satisfied to speak words of healing than words of hate or hurt. In conclusion, the reason that we're united with Christ the reason why Jesus did all of this in his life, death, and resurrection is so that we might be restored to the love of the, of, of the Father. And I want to end by suggesting this, that the love of the Father is jet fuel for change. At RUF Summer Conference, uh, Chad Scruggs, who's a pastor in Texas, he was the main speaker, and he told this story. He said that Chad had a friend who worked at a summer camp for boys. And um, during one day, during the summer, they would take them on a field trip, and they would go to uh, this theme park called Dollywood. If you've ever been, it's the most ridiculous place ever. But um, it's Dolly Parton's theme park. <laughs> But it's called Dollywood. It's, out, it's in Tennessee. And they would go there. And the, the friend said that after a long day of riding rides and chasing children around, all he wanted to do is just sit down and just kind of take a moment for himself. And so he did. He sat on a bench and he started to people watch. And he said that as he, as he did this, um, he noticed that not too far away 
we're those misting fans, you know, where it kind of just shoots a mist. Like Tennessee in the summer is so hot, right? So they're shooting just a mist out over people to cool them down. Um, and he said that there were a crowd of his kids, his boys, gathered around the misting fan. They were pointing at something and laughing. And so he wandered over to see what it was. And as he approached, he saw a father dancing with his young daughter, who was maybe eight or nine. And the dad was being really goofy and dancing the way that dads dance. I don't know, maybe y'all got some good dads that dance in here, but people should laugh at my dancing. It's worthy of laughter. And so the guy thought that that's what the kids were laughing at. But then he looked, and he paid a little closer attention, and he saw that the daughter had some physical abnormalities such that it made her dancing a little more awkward. One arm and one leg were a, bit, a little bit longer than the other, and her spine was misshapen. Um, and what he realized was that the kids weren't laughing at the dad, but the kids were laughing at her. And he was filled with rage. Rightfully so. How could they point and laugh at her like that? Someone who, who had to bear the brokenness of her body so visibly and so pain, plainly. And as he wondered what to do, you know, he wanted to just go and take the kids by the you know, scruff of the neck and take them back to the bus. He was wondering what to do. And as he did that, he glanced at the girl and he realized something. She had no idea what was going on. Because she was smiling and she was laughing and she was dancing and she was having the time of her life. Why? Because she was looking in the eyes of her father. And her father loved her so much. And that was so obvious. And she, and as she basked in and radiated the love of her father, this man saw that it changed who she was. She wasn't defined by that misshapen spine or the abnormalities in her arms or legs, but rather she was the most beautiful and lovely person in the whole place. The love that she received, she so, she so freely shared, and it changed everything about her. Y'all, the love of God for you and for others changes everything. And as you rest and as you receive His love, your words will follow suit. As you radiate the love that is shown to you, like this little girl radiated the love that her father had for her, your words will become conduits for healing and not hurt. As the Apostle John wrote, we love because he first loved us. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you so much that your healing word towards us is the word of your love. 
And we thank you that you have shown us that word most in Christ and what you've done in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And Father, we pray that you would help us to take account of our words and that they may reveal us, reveal to us where we really are. And Father, we pray that as you would help us, as we reflect on that, we would simultaneously reflect on our union with Christ. And that that would change our words and consequently would change our hearts. Father, we, again, we, we are weak to do this. But we know that you can and will do that in, in your Holy Spirit. And so we ask that you would. We ask it all in Christ's name.